If you have your Bibles, I want you to join me in Matthew chapter 21. Today is Palm Sunday, and I've titled this sermon today, Caught in the Maddening Crowd. Caught in the Maddening Crowd. And here's what I want to do. I want you to join me to, in going back on a journey. I don't want you to be a spectator listening to me. I don't want you to to view this as a story in the Bible. I want you to join me as we go back in time. See, this story of this people in this narrative, really, it is our story today as well. And so, as this story unfolds, I want you to place yourself in it as well. It was a Sunday morning in the spring sometime late March, early April perhaps, the popularity of Jesus was at an unparalleled high. We, you and I, we'd been hoping that he would show up for the feast. Rumor had it that Jesus was staying at Peter's house in Bethany. And now he had borrowed a donkey from a man in Bethphage and was now riding towards Jerusalem. Could today be the day? We have to drop everything that we're doing right now and head for the northeast entrance of the city if we have any hopes of being able to see him or being able to meet him when he comes. The crowd is beginning to form. It's Passover weekend, so the size of the city has swelled from the normal 50, 60, 70,000 people to well over a million, and some estimates two million people are now present from all over. Some say he's the promised one. Many say that he's healed the sick and he cleansed the lepers and opened blinded eyes and much, much more. Many say that they've seen him raise a man from the dead and in fact this man is with him today as a witness and an evidence of his great and mighty power. We're excited. Can this be our long-awaited king? Has liberation from, from the Roman oppression has it finally come to us? We run up the mountain towards Bethany and cresting uh, the first ridge of Mount Olivet, we see the huge crowd approaching and a huge crowd moving towards Jesus as well. Jesus is riding a colt. People are taking off their garments and they're, and they're cutting leafy branches from, from the field and they're laying them down in the pathway in front of him. Many are laying down palm branches that they've cut from palm trees, and others are waving palm branches as he goes by. The size, the energy, the chanting of the crowd is overwhelming. Everyone is shouting, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we're caught up in the moment with the rest of the crowd. Hey, we too, we're laying down our garments and we too are shouting Hosanna in the highest. The crowd is insane. It's a great day to be alive. The world as we know it is about to change forever. Yet just a few short days later, we're now caught up in a totally different kind of madness totally different type of insanity. It's Friday. We're in the palace courtyard. 
Pontius Pilate, the governor over Judea, proclaims, I find no fault in this man. And then he levies his verdict. And you're thinking silently to yourself, just as I am, why are we punishing him if he's not guilty? But our thoughts, they're quickly drowned out by the screams of passion from the maddening crowd. Away with this man! Give us Barabbas, the traitor, the rebel, the zealot who had been locked up in the same prison as Jesus. Pilate asked, then what am I supposed to do with Jesus? Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! But wait, Pilate says, he is your king. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him! Crucify him! The chant becomes overwhelming, mesmerizing, and we too are caught up in the madness of the crowd. What could have possibly happened that was so radical that in less than a week a hopeful, passionate crowd became a hateful, angry mob? How could a crowd of people proclaim, proclaim Jesus as king, long live the king on Monday, and then angrily seek to crucify him as a criminal on Friday? How does that happen? Today I want to give you just a couple of observations from the events of that week we call Passion Week, that I believe played a huge part in turning this hopeful, passionate crowd into a hateful, raging, angry mob. Reasons, I believe, why God's chosen people chose to crucify Jesus. Wow. First, they crucified Jesus because Jesus did not meet their expectations. You see, they expected vindication. These were the Jews, man. These were God's chosen people. They were, they were special descendants of Abraham. The nation that had been ruled by the likes of the prophet Moses and King David and, and King Solomon. God's covenant people, heirs to all of his promises. They were the precious. That's my favorite character in the Lord of the Rings, by the way. <laughs> that pastor is demented. And what's more is they've been praying for centuries for Messiah to come. Why? Because at his arrival, he would restore their rightful status. He would destroy the evil Roman Empire. He would restore the glory of Jerusalem and once again unify the nation. He'd conquer the land and usher in this eternal reign of peace and refuge and power. You see, in Jesus, the people expected a military leader who would lead them into victory, taking back for them what they rightfully deserved. But here's the problem. Jesus didn't bring vindication to them. Instead, he brought conviction to them. He didn't honor them as God's chosen 
God's holy, righteous nation. Instead, he confronted the sin that was rampant in his people, and he exposed the idolatry that was in their hearts. He wouldn't close his eyes or turn a deaf ear to the corrupt religious system that had now governed them. Instead of meeting their expectations, Jesus startled them into reality. Have you ever watched a real good movie that, you know, you're, you're in it and you're like, wow, man, you kind of got it figured out. And then all of a sudden the movie takes this unexpected turn. And you're like, what? Are you kidding me? Okay, I'm the only one that watch movies like that. I got to tell you, man, one of my favorite movies of all time is The Princess Bride. Everybody, yay! For those of you who didn't clap, if you want to go to heaven, you need to watch The Princess Bride. <laughs> okay, I'm just, I'm just, I'm kidding. It is a good movie, though, man. It's a classic movie. It's got, it has, it has the, the, uh, the hero, which is Wesley, you know, the Dread Pirate Robert guy. Um, it has the heroine, which is, which is Buttercup. Buttercup's a heroine. And it has the villain. His name is Prince Humperdinck. Now check this out. You know if your name is Prince Humperdinck, you are the villain. Uh, well, in, there's nobody in here named Humperdinck, right? Is it? So the story goes, man, you know, um, uh, uh, Buttercup and Wesley fall in love and they're going to get married, but Humperdinck comes and, and snatches her away and takes her into his kingdom, right? And, and let me stop right here because you can get lost in the story and you can forget that this story begins with a grandfather tucking in his grandson for the night and reading him a bedtime story, right? So he's reading the story, and the story unfolds, and now Humperdinck has Buttercup, and, and, and in hot pursuit is Wesley. But he gets captured, and he gets put, in, put into this torture chamber, and he's tortured, and everybody's expecting him to live, but he dies. And the grandfather shuts the book. And the young kid goes, no, are you kidding me? That can't be the way that it is. This is a stupid story. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. And the grandfather says, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. My wife said, don't tell the story. <laughs> it's like 30 years old. If you haven't watched it yet, I can't ruin it for you. Listen, this is, this is, this is, this is, this is what you were talking, where's Ryan? This is what Ryan was talking about last week when, when his wife interrupted him in the middle of the, that's my wife just said. But listen, this was not what they hoped for, man. This is not the way the story was supposed to end. And in much the same way, the children of Israel, this was not what they hoped for, man. This is not the king that they were looking for. They had it all planned out in their head how Jesus was supposed to come and ransom them away. You know, sometimes we get in the way of the work of God because we have it all figured out in our head how Jesus is going to come and deliver us. And when it doesn't look the way that we think that it should look, we have a fit. No, God, this can't be it. This can't be how it's supposed to end. 
But do, uh, you know, just, just in case you didn't realize this, Jesus has been at this for a long, long time. He knows what he's doing. This was what they hoped for, though. They wanted Jesus to reveal their righteousness and their holiness and their superiority. But instead of Jesus revealing those things, he exposed two things that I want to talk to you about today as we unpack this text. First, he exposed their spiritual poverty. I want you to allow me to give you three examples from the text. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, three examples from the text. Here's the first. The cleansing of the temple. Drop down to verse 12. Are you there? Amen. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Everybody say indignant. indignant. That just sounds like a bad word, doesn't it? And they said to him, did you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. He exposed their spiritual poverty. See, what I don't want you to miss is that Jesus had done this early. He had done this like three years earlier. And you can find the reference to that in John chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. And so this wasn't the first time. But since that time, there was corruption that had extended all the way outside of the temple into the temple courtyards. This place now had become what is known as the Bazaar of Annas or the marketplace of Annas, the high priest. And Annas, the high priest of Israel, was, or of the children of Israel, was in cahoots with the Roman government. So all the money that was, that was collected, the Roman government would get some off the top. And then Annas and his family, he had five sons, they would skim off the majority of the rest and leave just a small portion to the work of, of maintaining the temple. And what they would do is they would have these sacrifices in the temple that you would have to buy because your sacrifice wasn't good enough, no matter how good it was. And sometimes they would raise the, the prices of these sacrifices two to three times what they were worth. Exorbitant prices. And so Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56 and 7 and Jeremiah 7 and 11 to them. He says, my house was to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. He points out their wickedness and their righteous posturing in the name of God. And here's the point. Jesus is saying to his people, you think the Roman government is bad? But see, listen, you are worse than the Romans. They defile you as a nation and they demean your God. But listen, you defile yourselves and you defile the house of God. So when Jesus took this action, it evoked three responses that you can see immediately in this scripture. First, the first response is real ministry took place as Jesus was moving in this way. Those who were in need, they came to Jesus. The sick were healed. The lame, 
began to walk. The children in the temple whose hearts were, were tender, fertile soil and had eyes to see saw true justice and the holiness of Jesus Christ. And third, the leaders, the religious leaders of the day, they got angry. Why? Because they were exposed. They were exposed. And Jesus left them hanging right there. Can you feel the tension mounting? It's Monday now. Jesus walks out and he curses the fig tree. Let's read it, verse 18. In the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And when his disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to the mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, this is an interesting story, this cursing of the fig tree. It can seem kind of strange and maybe even confusing because Mark's account says that, that the, 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 it wasn't season, it wasn't the season for figs. And so it begs the question, why curse a tree for not having fruit when it's not the season for figs? You guys with me still? All three of you? If you would me say amen pastor. amen, pastor. Good, good. I want you to be with me. This is important. Tell you about the nature of fig trees. A fig tree bears fruit before it sprouts leaves. And, and sometimes, depending on the tree, it's the fruit first and then almost simultaneously the leaves. But it always bears fruit first before it sprouts leaves. But this tree had leaves and no fruit. This speaks to pretense. This is the point. See, see, this tree was pretty. It looked good and prosperous, but it was worthless to Jesus. Did you know that in the Old Testament that the fig tree stood often as a symbol for the nation of Israel? You'll find reference of that in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13, and Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. So listen, cursing the fig tree was like Jesus saying that the whole nation had become spiritually barren before the Lord. They had a form of righteousness, but not the reality of righteousness. They knew the right words to say. They knew the religious rituals to perform, but their hearts were far from God. And so this cursed fig tree became a metaphor for the condition of the nation. Can you feel the tension mountain? Third thing Jesus does is he challenges their religious authority. Look at verse 23. Here another parable. There's a master of the house who planted a vineyard. Am I at the right place? No, I'm not. And nobody caught me. Nobody said nothing. You're not at the right place, pastor. Verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him, and he was teaching 
and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? They were questioning Jesus. Jesus answered them, I also want to ask you a question. I love Jesus. I love how he does this. I also want to ask you a question. And then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, the baptism of John, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it from man? Watch what happens. And they discussed it amongst themselves saying, man, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd. For they hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he, Jesus, said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You know what Jesus exposed them in them? He exposed the cowardice of the leaders. That they couldn't even declare before the people what they actually believed. He exposed that the religious leaders were not driven by the truth but by what was politically and economically advantageous to them. See, the religious leaders of Israel and ultimately the people of Israel rejected Jesus because he didn't validate their sense of superiority. Instead, he exposed just how spiritually depraved they had become. You know, listen, more than 2,000 years later, not much has changed, has it? Real spiritual life still begins and is sustained when we admit our depravity. When we confess our need to stop trying to prove and stop trying to defend or provide for or validate ourselves. 2,000 years later, the only hope is still in surrendering wholeheartedly to Jesus. Still. So instead of vindication, Jesus brought conviction by first exposing their spiritual poverty. And then third, he exposed their religious hypocrisy. And I want to give you two parables right here in this text. The first is a simple question. Verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go to work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. Let me pause for a second. I come from an old school family, man. I can't even imagine telling my dad, my dad, Greg, I want you to go work in the field today. I will not. <laughs> I, I, I kind of understand why he went on and did it, because in my house, I understand why he would have to go out and do it after he said, I will not. For me, I can imagine, if I said I will not, you guys would be saying, Pastor, wake up, Pastor, wake up. <laughs> I will not, and afterwards he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same, and he answered, I will go, but he did not. Which of the two did the will of the Father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, the tax collectors, listen to this now, the tax collectors, the scum of the earth, in Jewish culture. And the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors, the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind. 
and believe him. Hmm. So Jesus asked the question, who, who is honestly devoted? The one who claims to be willing to obey and doesn't, or the one who struggles and argues and in the end obeys? See, honesty in this text is rewarded, not pretense of righteousness. And Jesus uses the worst of the worst sinners as an example, tax collectors, prostitutes. And here's the point. They struggle and they fail, but they know their need and they're willing to admit their need and they admit who they are and they obey. They surrender. Jesus wanted to make that point. And then he issues a second pointed challenge. And I'm close to closing. I'm getting ready to close. Mm -hmm. I am. Drop down to verse 33. I love this parable. Remember, Jesus spoke in parables so that those who had ears to hear could hear what he was saying. Listen to what he says. And hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it. He built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit draw near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took the servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent another servant more than the first, and they did the same to him, to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? And these, these religious leaders answered, they said to him, we will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of his, seed, of his seasons. <laughs> Jesus had them, man. Jesus had them right where he wanted them. The Pharisees were caught up in the story and they were outraged. And when they answered correctly, Jesus confronted their dishonesty. You know, it reminds me of the story of David and Nathan. Do you guys know the story in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel? where David steals Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite's wife, and sends Uriah the Hittite out to the front lines and has him killed. Remember the story? And Nathan the prophet comes to David and he says, there was a man who had many, many sheep and another man who only had one. And the one little sheep was the one that he nursed from a lamb and he, he nurtured it and he, and he raised it up high, or raised it up and he made sure that nothing was wrong with it. He brought this thing from a lamb all the way up like you would a child, someone that you love. And then the man who had all the sheep, he, he instead, of, instead of sacrificing one of his sheep for this other man who needed a sacrifice, sacrificed the man's sheep and then fed him his own sheep. What should be done to the man? David said, he should be killed. And Nathan said, you're the man. You're the man. And here's the point. This was a moment of truth for, his, for the people. And had they responded like David did when David repented, 
Had they been honest like the Samaritan woman at the well who was a prostitute? Had they responded in brokenness like Zacchaeus, the tax collector? Each of these examples in their own way, they repented. They too, these people whose hearts were hard, part of the angry mob, they would have also received grace and eternal life that Jesus was offering, but, but they didn't because they couldn't surrender their reputation nor forfeit their position. And so they went on pretending. And then verse 45 of this text says, they went out pretending to be right when they knew that they were wrong. They were hypocrites. You know what hypocrisy is? Hypocrisy is not about failing. It's not about beginning something and not being able to finish it, falling short. Hypocrisy is about pretending. Hypocrisy is saying that you'll do something knowing full well that you're not going to do it. So Jesus had challenged them with the truth of their hypocrisy. Do you know there's only two reactions to truth? The first reaction leads to anger and the second leads to shame and humility and repentance. And which one I choose depends on the willingness, my willingness to be honest about my struggles and my inconsistencies. And Jesus was was bringing this to them. You see, Israel had rejected Jesus because they couldn't face the truth about their need for a savior, their emptiness of their religion. They couldn't face it. And today, in much the same way, we have to face the same truth. When faced with the truth, they had a choice to declare and defend it or to deny and destroy it. And so they chose to crucify the truth teller. Jesus entered into Jerusalem to start a revolution, a personal revolt, not a political one. And for the rest of that week, the rest of the week that we call Passion Week, Jesus would show that real life doesn't begin with the assertion of our rights and power. It begins to, with dying to ourselves and desperately crying out for the Lord to give us life. He came for a revolution of the heart. And Mitch, you can come forward. This sort of revolution can be painful, can it? This sort of revolution cuts to the core of who we are. It exposes our false confidence and our self-centered motives in life. But the, the outcome is real, permanent life transformation. I love what Ryan said last week in his message when he said, we, by our own volition, choose to follow Jesus. And we step off the shore and we get into boat with him. And we say to him, you're the captain of my life, Jesus. I'll follow you wherever you go. And then when the storms of life come, we begin to question Jesus. We begin to question whether or not what he's doing is right for us. But here's the point, and he made it so eloquently last week. If, if we don't step off the shore, we'll never, ever know what Jesus has in store for us. But we have to face the truth. 
We have to face the truth that no matter what, no matter how long we've been living for Jesus, our righteousness is as filthy rags. And if we truly want to be more and more like Jesus every day, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to turn the searchlight onto our heart and to show us the areas of our lives where we're falling short and then confronted with that truth, we have to make the decision to step into it by the help of the Holy Spirit and allow Jesus to transform that part of our lives permanently. We'd been talking different about, we'd have had a different outcome to Palm Sunday had the children of Israel did that. But I suggest to you that there'd be a different outcome, there'll be a different outcome to your life when you choose to face the truth and embrace the saving grace of Jesus Christ that's for you in every area of deficiency in your life, and we all have them. Will you stand with me? You see, Palm Sunday and Easter are about facing the truth about ourselves, surrendering to the work of our Savior, and experiencing real and permanent life change and eternal transformation. So I want to leave you with this question. Jesus stands at the door of our hearts and he knocks. What will you do with Jesus? With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one talking. I love this church family because I know that we follow hard after Jesus. But I don't want to presume that everyone in here has a relationship with the Lord. I don't want to stand before God one day giving an account of all the deeds that were done in my body, having missed one single opportunity to invite someone to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time. So if you're here and you don't, you don't have a personal relationship with this Savior that we're talking about who came and bled and died and rose again, so that you can have a right to eternal life and eternal peace with him. And you want to know him? Today's your day, man. You don't have to leave here the same. You do not have to go out of here outside of relationship with Jesus Christ. If that's you, I want you to slip your hand up. Raise your hand real high. Seeing no hands, you, my brothers and sisters, who know Jesus. I pray that this week, this Passion Week, as we observe the, the comings and the goings of Jesus this week, I, I pray that you will ask the Holy Spirit to shine the light of truth into your heart. And if he finds anything that's not like Jesus, that he'll reveal it to you so that you can surrender to him and he can remove it from your life. 
It's this act that will make us more like Jesus. Father, I pray, thank you for your word today. This is Life Spring Bible Church, and so we did a whole lot of Bible reading today. I thank you for the truth of your life and your death, your burial and your resurrection, and for the truth that one day you're going to come and get us out of this twisted, distorted world and bring us to a home where we'll be forever celebrating your goodness. Praise you for that in Jesus' name. And everyone said?